Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we learned in the previous chapter that a Jew should not feel dejected or despondent for the fact that he has, he's bombarded with negative thoughts that intrude during his, uh, his day-to-day uh, business. On the contrary, he should rejoice in the fact that he's fulfilling the will of Hashem, he's fulfilling a mitzvah. And that is to reject the negative thought that enters your mind. Every time you reject the negative thought, you're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. That is the, that is the divine will. That is the purpose of creation. This is what gives Hashem infinite pleasure. And then he said that in addition to fulfilling a, a negative prohibition by pushing away negative thoughts, every time you overcome your natural urge or instinct to, to do something permissible, you also give Hashem infinite pleasure. And thereby you fulfill a positive commandment. Positive commandment, you should be holy to Hashem. Holy, as the rabbis say, is a, one of the 613 mitzvot, you should, you should even separate yourself from things that are permitted. Not only things that are prohibited, you should stay away from, but even things that are permitted, you should also stay away from. And it gives Hashem infinite pleasure. And like he said, that the, he quotes the Talmud, that the rabbis would push off their meal for two hours, even though they weren't gaining anything, but just the idea of overcoming their natural urge and instinct and hunger, and they pushed it off. Because in order to be able to elevate and to transform this world, the test is, are you in control or not? The test is, could you walk away from it? If you can't walk away from it, then you can delude yourself and think that you're in control. But that, that's the proof. Could you walk away from it? If you can't walk away from it, then you're addicted. And there's no way you can elevate it. How can you elevate it when you yourself are so are addicted to it? It's, it's in control of you. You're not in control of it. How can you elevate and transform it when it's in control of you? But a person could delude himself. Yeah, it's no problem. To quit smoking is no problem. I've done it dozens of times, right? If you can walk away from it, that's a sign of mastery. That's a sign of control. So the Tamidah HaChomim, the Torah scholars, would delay their meal for two hours. In other words, they're hungry, they want to eat. I'll wait. I, ha- I have an urge and I have an instinct, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a master, I'm in control. And therefore, when they ate, they had the ability to elevate that experience. That became a, a holy experience. So when a, this is a Jew's approach to the material world. Money, power, fame, all of these things are, are, are props, are good things, healthy, whole, could be healthy, wholesome things. It depends if you are defined by it or not. If you are defined by it and you can't walk away from it and you're addicted to it, then you're, you're in prison. If you're in prison, how can you free yourself? You can't, if you can't free yourself, you can't free or elevate this experience. But if you can walk away from it and you display mastery, that you're in charge, then you can elevate all, all human experiences could be elevated. All kosher experiences could be elevated. Then the act of eating becomes something more than just fulfilling a natural urge.
and doing business, etc. So this is, the, this is the fulfillment of the mitzvah. This is the divine will. That Hashem wants a Jew to be master over, over himself and mastery over his natural instincts and urges. And then he's empowered to engage in everything that's permissible and to elevate it and to transform it into a holy, into a meaningful experience. So this is the will of Hashem. You're fulfilling the mitzvah of sanctifying that which is permitted. Otherwise, Nachmanity says, you can be a scoundrel and you're following the letter of the law. You're doing everything by the book. But you're a scoundrel. You're low life. Technically, you're doing everything by the book. You're not doing anything wrong. No one can hold you to a court of law. But you're not living in the spirit of the law. The spirit of Yiddishkeit is, what's the whole spirit of Yiddishkeit is? That, it, that we're not defined by materialism. Nothing external can make us happy. Money, power, fame, all these externals. This is just the shell. It's the means to the end. So when that becomes your end, and that becomes how you define yourself, and, and then you're imprisoned, and you're under, under its control, it controls you, you don't control it, then it becomes a prison. Then it becomes oppressive. But when are you holy? When you approach it, when you deal with it. But you're the master over it. It's not a master over you. Then it can be something wonderful and useful and powerful. You take money, the ultimate ego symbol, and you can give tzedakah with it. It's a very powerful tool. A person of influence, a person who's wealthy, a person of influence, uses that influence to be a role model to inspire hundreds and thousands of people and millions of people. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So all of these things could be tools, money, power, fame. But as long as you're not controlled by it, you control it. So every time you overcome your nature, every time you overcome your urge, your instinct, even to do something kosher, we're not talking about an urge or instinct, be prohibition, don't follow your, your heart, it's talking about don't follow your eyes, your heart is talking about a negative thought that you have to dismiss. Here we're not talking about anything negative, we're talking about something that's kosher and permissible. Glad kosher. But as long as you, as you are controlled by it, and you're a prisoner of your own urges and instincts and habits and, and natural instincts, then you cannot elevate it. So the Torah says you have to be holy. And that's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the whole Torah is that a Jew should be transcendent. You should rise above this world. You should be objective. You should be a little detached. You should be something of an outsider. And that's what gives you that perspective, that clarity then you can utilize everything in this world and utilize it for, for, for something divine and godly and beautiful and wholesome. Then every human experience becomes a healthy and wholesome human experience. But how do I know? It's, it's very easy to delude yourself. I can delude myself that I'm, I'm a master. You know, it's like the story they uh, say a person would, every night he would come into the bar and he would order two drinks. The bartender asked him, why two drinks? Every single night without fail. He says, well... This is to commemorate my best friend, my buddy, in Vietnam. He died in Vietnam. And we always used to go to the bar together. So I'm drinking one for me and one for my friend. One day he comes in, he only orders one drink. So he says, what happened? He says, I'll tell you the truth. I quit drinking. This is for my friend. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very easy to delude yourself. People think, yeah, I'm in control, I'm in charge, I'm, I'm on top of it. It's one proof. Could you walk away from it or not? So every time you overcome your urge, you want to do something, but just suppressing that urge. 
master over the, or mastery over that urge. I'm not going to be bossed around by urges and instincts, by nature. I am the master. When you display that mastery, then you have the ability to, um, to overcome. Then you have the ability to elevate it and to make it a holy experience. Okay. So that was last week's discussion, the previous chapter. And this week he's going to address... He says, that's all well and good when you have urges and instincts and you're troubled by desires, bombarded by thoughts, and instead of feeling sad, you think to yourself, that why, should, why am I feeling sad? I should feel joyful. Because I'm fulfilling a mitzvah. I'm fulfilling a mitzvah, don't follow your eyes or your heart, and I'm fulfilling a mitzvah to act and be holy. I'm doing what Hashem wants of me. I'm God's holy warrior. I'm on the front lines. Every time I overcome my urge, my instinct, every time I, I turn away from a negative thought, it gives God infinite pleasure and it, it, it has tremendous, tremendous, uh, profound implication. But that's true and well when I go about my daily life. But what happens if I am in the midst of prayer, I'm in the middle of an intense prayer session, or I'm in the midst of a very deep, deeply engrossing a studying of Torah, and all of a sudden, right in the middle, usually it happens smack in the middle, <laughs> when I'm in my most intense moment, and I'm focused, and I'm all, I'm in the zone, and I'm focused, and I'm concentrating, and I'm connected, all of a sudden, I get all these thoughts. It doesn't necessarily have to be negative thoughts. All, my, all of a sudden, my best business ideas <laughs> come to my head, my best business strategies, what I'm going to argue at the next meeting, and my smack in the middle of my prayer. Now, here there's nothing to get excited about. Nothing to be joyful. If it happens in the middle of the day, so there I'm joyful because I can fulfill a mitzvah. I'm doing Hashem's will. But here I'm, I'm doing a mitzvah already. I'm praying. I'm doing something divine. I'm doing something holy and godly. So, so why? It's only a distraction. It's a major distraction. And it's enough to get you feeling dejected. Like, what's the point? Here I am, I'm trying so hard, and after much effort, and I'm finally focusing and concentrating, and, and the heat of the moment, and it's intense, and it's, it's deep, and it's, it's moving, and all of a sudden I get bombarded with all these negative thoughts or ordinary thoughts. That can be very discouraging, very disheartening. So what's the answer? You can't give the answer you gave earlier. That you should be joyful, because by pushing it away, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. I'm already doing a mitzvah. I don't need to look for more mitzvah. I'm praying. I'm doing something divine. So why would I be bombarded and distracted by all these thoughts? Because if God wants me to do the right thing, I'm doing the right thing. I'm immersed, full immersion in prayer, in Torah. I'm doing the mitzvah. I'm do- so why am I being bombarded with all these thoughts? That's a very discouraging thought. It makes no sense. Here God wants me to be godly. Finally, you have my attention, you have my focus, you have my concentration. Why am I being bombarded? Why am I being distracted like this? It's very disheartening, it's very discouraging. And I can't help myself. And there's nothing I can do about it. So no matter how hard I try, everything is stacked against me. So how do you deal with this? It's enough to make you very, it's very demoralizing. It's enough to make you depressed. What's the point of all this hard effort and all this hard work? when I can't help myself and I'm being constantly bombarded. Usually at the juiciest point, when I'm in the heart of prayer, right then and there, that's when I get my best, my best idea. 
business idea. So this is what Alter Rebbe is going to address in this chapter. 366. Even, Even if lustful imaginings or other extraneous thoughts occur to him during his service of Hashem in Torah or in prayer with Kavana, he should pay them no attention, but avert his mind from them immediately. Nor should he be so foolish as to engage in sublimation of the mitos of the extraneous thought, as is known that one can overcome extraneous thoughts by elevating their source. What's the difference between averting the thought and, and sublimating the thought? There's a big difference. Averting the thought means simply dismissing it, just changing channels, just ignoring the thought and, and just thinking, for, going forward and just thinking about what you were thinking before, thinking about the prayer. Don't pay attention to any external thoughts. Not only negative thoughts, but any external thoughts. But then, there is a concept that's discussed in Hasidic books. And that's a concept of sublimation. And that is that when a person is bombarded with a negative thought, let's go back to the root, the source of this negative thought. There's an emotion. Let's say you have a thought, a lustful thought. So, everything has a holy source. There is the desire, and then there's the object of the desire. Obviously, in this case of a lustful thought, the object of the desire is not desirable. But the desire itself is very desirable. Because where does lust come from? What are you looking for? What, what are you really missing in your life that you're lusting? It means you're looking for love. You're looking for something very deep that's lacking in your life. And therefore you're trying to fulfill it in all the wrong places. Obviously lust is not going to answer that need, that deep need. But the need, the desire, it, there's something positive in that desire. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something there. There's a holy spark there. There's something real going on. You're hungering for love, you're hungering for approval, you're hungering for a relationship. But because you don't have a healthy outlet or you don't know how to express it in a healthy way, so it comes out in a very distorted way, it comes out in a lustful way. Of course, the lust is a dead end, it's self-destructive. Not only aren't you going to find what you're looking for, it's only going to alienate you even more and distance you even more and, and you just get even more and more twisted and the momentary pleasure just ends up in total ruin and destruction and self-destruction. And it's a dead end. Because nothing external will satisfy you. You have a very deep inner hunger. You're hungering for something insatiable. You're hungering for something very deep and very in, inward. Nothing external in the world will possibly satisfy you. All this, uh, the sensational lust, and even if you fulfilled all your sensational lust, it will never, ever, ever begin to satisfy what you're really looking for. But the, the kernel, there's a kernel of truth there. There is the, the object of desire in this case is wrong, but the desire itself, there's a truth there. So the idea of sublimation is try to get to the root. Lust. Love. What am I really love? What am I really looking for? What am I hungering for? Really. It, I'm hungering for a connection to something divine. I have an insatiable desire. Something to something undefined. That's why um, lust is, is also insatiable. Man is the only creature in the world that has insatiable desires. When was the last time you met an animal that was addicted, overeating, overdrinking, overdosing? 
oversexing. Animals bond once a year, twice a year, and they're very happy, they're very satisfied. Only man has an insatiable appetite. And it's, it's all-consuming, and it's self-destructive. That's why also all society places boundaries, because otherwise people would just destroy themselves in their lust. Where does this insatiable appetite come from? Because what we're really hungering for is for something divine, something godly. But we can't put our finger in it. So something gets lost in the translation. In the Shvirata Kelim, in the breaking of the vessels, this holy energy got lost, and this became distorted, coarse, and gross. And suddenly it's, it's reflected in a very coarse, the grotesque object. I lust for something bodily, something physical, something external, something superficial that can never possibly satisfy me. There's no love there, there's no soul, there's no egolessness, there's no genuineness, there's no authenticity, there's no, no depth. It's all skin deep, superficial. And of course, it's like junk food. The more you eat, the hungrier you get, the less satisfied you are. The more you, you fulfill your lust, the hungrier you get. The deeper you go into, into, this, into this dead end, because you, know, you have to find something novel to excite you, and then you have to find even something more novel, because there's nothing there. Real love, the more you try to satisfy the love, it's insatiable. It's like pouring kerosene on the flame. Real love that's based on selflessness and two souls connecting and something personal where two people become intimate and close with each other. The more you satisfy it, the hungrier you get. It, it, it's a never-ending in a healthy way, in a wholesome way, until you build a relationship that lasts a lifetime. But in lust, with eroticism, it's on the contrary. The more you satisfy it, it the less satisfied you. And therefore you need something crazier and something weirder and something more distorted and something more twisted and something more painful just to, to satisfy your, your lust. But, you know, it's a dead end. There's nobody home. There's nothing there. So something got lost in the translation. That's the shattering of the vessels. But the origin of the lust itself, the origin is holy, has a holy spark. So the, Kabbali- the Hasidic works talk about when a person has lust, to deal with it, let's get to the root cause. Instead of dealing with the symptoms, let's get to the root cause. What is the desire, the holy spark of the desire that's holy and wholesome? And develop that love. Obviously, you need a love for Hashem. You don't have a love for Hashem in your life. You feel parched, you feel hungry, you feel insatiable desire for Hashem. So cleave to Hashem, strengthen your desire to Hashem, strengthen your love to Hashem, and that will satisfy your, 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 what you're really looking for. Once you're satisfied, you're really looking for, you will no longer lust. Because that's not what you're looking for, and that's never going to satisfy you. So this is a way of dealing with, with the, going to the root cause of the problem, and that's the idea of sublimation. At realizing that everything negative in this world has something positive. It has to have a holy spark, otherwise it wouldn't exist. And try to get to the root cause, try to get to that holy spark and uncover that holy spark and develop that holy spark, and then the negativity will just shed, will just, it will just melt away and disappear. So the Alter Rebbe here dismisses this whole. Because the Alter Rebbe's audience is the Benini. The Bainani, 99.9% of us. Then you have the tzaddik. This idea of sublimation is only applicable to a tzaddik. One or two in a generation. A tzaddik. Because in order to be able to deal with the lust in such a way, 
or with anger, or whatever issue it is, to be able to deal with it, get to the root cause. Where's the anger coming from? A person suffers from anger, also get to the root cause, sublimate it. That means you have an intensity in your life, you're lacking an intensity, an intense devotion to Hashem, or an intense sense of awe of Hashem. Develop that, and then the anger will melt them. But who are we talking about? We're talking about someone who can distance himself from, from his emotions. When you can't distance yourself from the emotions, when you're in the emotion, you know, if you want to smell the, the chicken soup, you can't keep your nose in the soup. <laughs> you have to step back from the soup. When your nose is in the soup, you can't smell the soup. When you're in the soup, you can't smell the soup. When you're in the emotion, and you're stewing in the emotion, and you're uh, gripped by the emotion, and you're obsessed with the emotion, you don't have the ability to step back from your emotion. It's a very rare ability to step back from your emotion in a totally, completely detached way, and then you can start going back to the root cause of the emotion and sublimating it and dealing with it at the root cause. It's simply, we don't have the luxury to do that. We simply don't have the ability to do that. So that whole discussion is not for people like us. Not for average people. That's not the way we deal with these emotions. Dr. Rebbe laughs at them. He says, don't be a fool. We're not talking to people like you. Everything you read in those books is talking to the very special person. A person who can totally detach himself from his emotions. Totally remove himself from the emotion. And view it totally, completely, objectively and from a completely detached form. The tzaddik. He can deal with it. In this way, he can sublimate it, he can go to the root cause and find the root cause of lust and find the root cause of anger. But don't be a fool, know your place. This is not talking to people like you and I, average Jew, 99.9% of us. That's not the way we deal with it. Continue. Nor should he be so foolish as to engage in sublimation of the mitos of the extraneous thought as is known, that one can overcome extraneous thoughts by elevating their source. For every such thought stems from one of the mitos of the animal soul. For example, the mita of love in the animal soul gives rise to one's lustful thoughts. The mita of fear gives rise to hatred and to fears inappropriate to him, and so on. It is therefore written, when one is disturbed by such a thought, he should determine which mita is its source and should then refocus that mita on the spiritual aspects of the object of his thoughts. For example, if the extraneous thought is a desire for some physical object, one should contemplate that the desirability of the object which he craves is actually a manifestation of the divine power that made it desirable, beautiful, tasty, or whatever. Therefore, Rather than applying his desire, i.e. his mita of love, to the object's physical sheath, he should direct it to the godliness that underlies it. He will thereby elevate the corresponding mita of his animal soul to his divine source, and thus destroy the evil in the thoughts caused by the mita, leaving only the good, the sparks of holiness embedded in them. This is what is meant by sublimating the mitos in order to overcome extraneous thoughts. For the Benoni, however, such an exercise would be sheer foolishness, as the Alter Rebbe explains presently. For such things were intended only for tzaddikim, in whom there do not occur any evil thoughts of their own evil mitos, but only from the mitos of others. Since the tzaddik has transformed the mitos of his animal soul to good, no evil thoughts can arise from them. 
any evil thought that may arise in his mind stems from the midos of others. So a tzaddik who is no longer even tempted, even subconsciously, his, his, his soul has been completely transformed. He's, he's egoless. He, he's, even, he's no longer even tempted for anything material, external, superficial, lustful. So he, if he uh, suddenly has a thought, a lustful thought, where is the thought coming from? It's not an emotionally intense lustful thought because he doesn't have, he no longer has those emotions. He's no longer attracted to anything superficial, skin deep, material, external. He's all, only attracted to godly things, to wholesome things. He has such clarity that he's no longer tempted. But suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, he's bombarded with a lustful thought. But it's a very cold thought. The thought is, is lifeless, but it's a thought that enters, enters his mind. The tzaddik is sufficiently detached from the thought. Since he's completely detached from the thought, he can approach the thought and sublimate it and go to the root of the source. Of the source. Where does the thought come from? If a tzaddik has transformed his emotion and even his subconscious has been completely transformed, his core and his essence has been completely transformed, where does this thought come from? The Rebbe says the thought doesn't come from him. But the soul of the tzaddik, he's like a leader. And he's connected to the souls of those people who are connected to him, who are his followers. So what happens is that one of the people in this flock, his spiritual disciples, who are perhaps struggling and can't deal with their own issues, are drowning and can't deal with their own lustful thoughts or their own angry, angry thoughts. So what Hashem does is Hashem throws, bombards the tzaddik with his thought. And when the tzaddik sublimates this thought, the tzaddik empowers his follower, his spiritual disciple, to be able, that he should be able to overcome and deal with this negative thought. So only the tzaddik is really able to sublimate, to go to the root cause and, and to, to discover the, this, this, the, that the desire itself is holy and to discover the goodness in this, in this uh, the holy spark in this experience, what's wholesome, because there's something wholesome in everything in life. When there's anger or jealousy or, or lust, there is something wholesome there. There's a holy spark. Everything in this world has to, be, has to have at least a spark of wholesomeness. It's not all neg- negative. And you have to discover that spark of holiness, that, that wholesomeness. So the tzaddik is able to discover that spark of wholesomeness. What is the inner desire? What is the core desire? What are you really trying to say? What's getting lost here in the translation? What are you really trying to say? But it's inarticulate. You can't articulate it and it comes, it comes across in all the wrong ways. What are you really trying to say? So the tzaddik has, has that ability. So this is referring to the tzaddik exclusively. Continue. For another individual whose soul root is connected with this tzaddik finds himself in difficulty combating his own evil midos and requires his assistance. This person's evil thought is therefore planted in the mind of the tzaddik, though in the form of mere abstract letters of thought, without any feeling of evil attached to it. The tzaddik, recognizing the source of this thought, redirects it towards the spiritual realm, as explained above, and thereby elevates the mida whence it stems, thus enabling his fellow Jew to overcome his own evil midos. 
But only the tzaddik can accomplish this, since he himself possesses no evil meetings. So again, this is consistent with the service of a tzaddik. The tzaddik, as we learned in last week's chapter, the tzaddik in the previous chapter, his mission in life is to transform the negative into positive. He's able to take the negative and turn it around and to discover that in the negative there's really a positive. There's a holy spark. There's something healthy and wholesome. There's a little sprout, something trying to sprout out here, trying to communicate, trying to say something that needs to be said in a wholesome way. So the tzaddik has the ability to transform this negative and reveal the positive in the negative. And by doing so, by doing what the tzaddik can do, he empowers the rest of us to do what we can do. But this is the exclusive service of the tzaddik, because the tzaddik is detached, the tzaddik is removed, removed from it. Therefore, he has the power to sublimate. But we don't be a fool to think that we have the power to sublimate. We don't. We're overwhelmed. Our nose is in the soup. When you're, when you're, when you're, when you're caught up in the, in the emotion, you can't, you can't, you don't have the detachment, the objectivity to remove yourself and to start, begin to sublimate. So how do you deal with it? People like us, the rest of us, 99.9% of us, how do we deal with these negative thoughts when we're bombarded with negative thoughts or with, with ordinary thoughts at the wrong time, in the middle of our prayer? Okay, continue. But as for one, i.e. a Benoni, to whom there occurs an evil thought of his own, from the evil that is lodged in the left part of his heart, i.e. the evil mitos of his animal soul, how can he raise it up to the spiritual realm when he himself is bound below by his desire for the material? It would therefore be foolish for the Benoni to attempt to rid himself of extraneous thoughts by engaging in the sublimation of his midos. We are defined by it. We are defined by the midas. We are our midas. We are our... So we cannot uh, sublimate it. Nevertheless, he must not be downhearted nor feel dejected and despicable because of this occurrence of extraneous thoughts during his service of Hashem, when he ought to be most joyous. On the contrary, he should draw fresh strength and intensify his determination with all his power to pray with concentration, with even greater joy and gladness, in the realization that the foreign thought which occurred to him derives from the klipa of the left part of the heart, which wages war within the bainani against the divine soul within him. He's saying that the only way for us to deal with these negative thoughts is to dismiss them. Okay, but how can you help feeling sad, dejected, by having to deal with this, with this issue, and having to deal with these negative thoughts? And no matter how hard you try, and when you're trying the hardest, at that moment... That's when you you're feel you're being challenged. So that's a very, very uh, demoralizing thought. And no matter how hard you try, at your peak, that's when you are going to be the most distracted, and that's when you're going to be challenged and, and constantly bombarded. So Al Rebbe says, don't, don't feel despondent, don't feel dejected, don't feel depressed. On the contrary, you should feel intensely joyful. Why should you feel intensely joyful? He says, not only shouldn't it discourage you in your prayer, but you should take the opportunity to intensify your prayer. That's your signal to intensify your prayer. <laughs> Why is that your signal to intensify your prayer? Because he's going to explain, it's not a sign of failure, of moral failure, of spiritual failure, 
that you feel like such a failure, I'm such a spiritual failure. Here, in my peak moment, when I'm the most spiritual, I'm the most intense, I finally am focusing and I'm concentrating and I, have, I feel I have it all together and I'm centered. And right smack in the middle, I suddenly get distracted and bombarded. I feel like a failure on the country. Not only isn't it a sign of failure, as a matter of fact, it's a sign of success. It's a sign of tremendous success. How is this a sign of success? He says, because the enemy. He says, it's a wrestling match. And when the enemy senses that you're winning, the enemy is getting nervous. So why suddenly, right smack in the middle, when, when everything is going so beautiful, suddenly you get bombarded? Exactly, because it's going so beautiful. Because your prayer is so intense, because your prayer is so genuine, because your prayer is so authentic, so meaningful, so moving, the Yetzirah is getting nervous. The other side, the enemy is getting very nervous. The enemy feels that it's losing, it's losing its grip. So the fact that you, you've awakened the enemy... It's a sign of your strength. It's a sign of your success. You're doing so well that you woke up the enemy. When there's no struggle, you know why there's no struggle? It could be one of two things. Either because you won the battle. Highly unlikely. (laughs) The more probable explanation is that the enemy has nothing to worry about. You're asleep. You think that you're in a good place, but you're delusional. You know, human's capacity for, the, for delusion is infinite. So you're self-delusional. Yeah, he has you exactly where you want him to. Where you want him to. You're in such a low spiritual level that the, the enemy can go to sleep. You're doing the job for him. He doesn't, doesn't have to do anything. You're so asleep at the wheel that he has nothing to worry about. But here, suddenly, you're awake. And you're aware. And you're praying. And you're intense. And you're focused. And you're concentrated. Well, now the enemy's getting excited, getting nervous. You better wake up. I woke, you woke up. He's waking up. So it's a sign of success. It's a signal to intensify your prayer. You're doing something right. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not a failure. On the contrary, you're a success. Because you're a success, that's why the competition is getting nervous. The competition is waking up. And there's opposition. How do you know a rabbi is a good rabbi? You have opposition. There's no opposition. That means, that means the rabbis are doing anything. That's why... <laughs> Oh, he's doing something. Opposition. The greatest rabbis had opposition. From Moses on down. And Moses Maimonides. And the Baal Shem Tev, And the Rebbe. The greatest rabbis. The ones who are doing the most. The ones who had the deepest impact. The most profoundest impact. They have the greatest opposition. It's a sign of success. It's a sign that you're really making a difference. When the Eitzhara feels that you're about to change a personality trait, a character trait, you're getting serious about overcoming your anger, overcoming your lust, overcoming your, your, your jealousies, changing your, your nature. And now he's getting nervous. This is serious business. He's getting serious here. I better, I, better, I better put up a good fight. So it's a sign of success. And therefore, it's a signal to intensify. Not only keep on doing what you're doing and do it even better. And stronger. So the more that you're bombarded with these thoughts, right smack in the middle of the prayer, that's a signal to continue doing what you're doing and to only intensify on, on an even higher level. Okay, David, you want to read that is known? It is known that it is the way of combatants who seek to destroy one another, and similarly, of wrestlers who aim merely to topple one another, 
that when one is gaining the upper hand, the other likewise exerts himself with all the resources of his strength in order to prevail. Therefore, in the battle between the divine soul and the animal soul, when the divine soul exerts itself and musters all its strength in prayer, thereby to weaken or even vanquish the animal soul, the klipa of the animal soul too gathers strength to counter it, aiming to confuse and topple the divine soul by means of a foreign thought of its own. So it's not so much when you're learning Torah, it's more so when you pray. Torah necessarily doesn't, the evil inclination doesn't get so nervous. It's all abstract. It's a mental trip. It's a mental game. So it's a mental trip. The Torah doesn't get so nervous. Prayer, now you're getting serious. Because prayer is when you internalize it. Prayer is when it hits home. Prayer is when you truly change, when you truly are inspired, when you truly move. When you, when you take it to heart, when you begin to, to transform yourself, when it really hits home. It's like that famous story, the, uh, the olden days, people, when people were, most people were illiterate, and he would go to the town Malamed, the town teacher, to read the letters for them. And um, so Malamed, the teacher, is reading this letter, this poor peasant, he's reading this letter. You know, your father got very sick, and he's reading, and he's starting to cry. And then your father was taken to the hospital, and he's starting to cry even more. And then he wrote, and your father died, and he's, he's you know, he almost faints, and he's yelling, and he... And he's all hysterical. And the teacher is continuing to read cold-bloodedly, no, no change of facial expression. And a bystander was very puzzled. He says, I don't get it. He is literate. He can read the letter. And he's not getting excited. This illiterate peasant, he's getting excited. He's crying and he's, he's, he's fainting. And he's, and he's illiterate. He, can't, he, doesn't, he can't even read. He says, why don't you understand? It's very simple. This is his father. This is not his father. He could be literate. And he could be knowledgeable. He could be brilliant. But it's not my father. In, when you study Torah, without prayer, it's all abstract. It's interesting. It's stimulating. It's intellectually stimulating. But it's abstract. It's not about me. It's not a, it doesn't hit home emotionally or psychologically or personally. In prayer, it hits home. You're talking about this, my father. It's a person. What about the mitzvot? Are they somewhere in between? The mitzvot are action, right? It's hard to be abstract when you mix mitzvot. Uh, you're focused and you're concentrating and it's action. But again, the mitzvot also could be like by rote or mechanical, without soul. It's the prayer that infuses the mitzvot with life, with vitality. You do the mitzvah passionately with love and, and, and with excitement and with concentration. And then the mitzvot come alive. So prayer is really the connector for, for the whole Yiddishkeit. Prayer is like, that's why prayer is compared to the, the backbone. The backbone, the, the uh, spine. The spine is not counted as one of the limbs, but remove a spine, someone who's spineless, and the whole, the whole organism collapses. It's just a heap of bones. and The spine is what keeps the whole structure together. It infuses all of the mitzvot with passion, with life, with a sense of godliness. So it's only in prayer, when godliness hits home, when suddenly you feel, you come into focus, and you feel centered, 
and you focus and you, and you concentrate and you feel connected on a conscious level you feel the godly spark located at the center of your being and suddenly you come alive and godliness comes alive to you and it becomes personal and you take it to heart now the other side is getting nervous this is serious till now it's all abstract but now it's too close to home now you're talking about real change, real uh, transformation. This is, this is, now he starts fighting back. The other side starts, starts fighting back. This is serious. And, and this, is, this is, we're playing for keeps here. This is for real. He's really taking God seriously. And he's really going to change his life as a result. He won't be so jealous and he won't be so lustful. He won't be so angry and he'll be a better person and a nicer person and an egoless person and a kinder person and do mitzvot and do it with enthusiasm. Nah, this, is, this is already too much. Now, now you're getting serious. Now listen, I'm not going to play dead. I'm not going to lie down and surrender. His mission is to fight. And he puts up a great fight, a grand fight. So on the contrary, it's a signal, it's a sign that you're doing something right. And it's a signal to continue doing what you're doing because you're doing something fabulous. You hit it on the nail. You woke, you woke up the opposition. That means you're really communicating. <laughs> you're really hitting home. You're really connecting. You're really communicating. T-O-T. This is real. So continue doing what you're doing and only intensify. Okay, continue. The animal soul. The animal soul sensing danger in the divine soul's increased efforts in prayer with devotion contrives to jar one's concentration by conjuring up assorted foreign thoughts in his mind. Thus, the appearance of an extraneous thought during prayer indicates that one's devotion was of sufficient quality to give the animal soul cause for concern, and this realization itself should gladden one and encourage him to continue his efforts. Instead of being dejected and, and sad and depressed, on the contrary, you should feel joyful. You're doing something right for a change. You're hitting home. This refutes a common error. When a foreign thought occurs to some people during prayer, they mistakenly conclude that their prayer is worthless. For if one prayed properly and correctly, so they mistakenly believe, no foreign thoughts would arise in his mind. They would be correct if there would be but one soul within a person the same soul that prays being also the one that thinks and ponders on the foreign thoughts. It, it appears as if, as if we're schizophrenic. <laughs> you know, the same person, one moment we're holy, the next moment we have these dirty, ugly, disgusting thoughts. I mean, you're here, you're there, who are you? Are you sublime or elevated, an angel? The next moment you're slime. <laughs> In the gutter, and the dirt, and the mud. What's going on here? So you can start wondering, am I schizophrenic? What's wrong with me? If I were a healthy person, if I were psychologically healthy, I would, I would be on the same page. How can I swing from one extreme to the other? And simultaneously, while I'm praying, and I'm in, this, in the heat, in the spiritual heat, intensely, intense moment, spiritual elevated moment at that moment I'm bombarded with all these disgusting thoughts I'm ashamed of so what's wrong with me and you start feeling depressed and dejected and this was the dilemma this was the question that troubled very much it troubled Rebecca Rivka 
gave birth to twins, Yaakov and Esau. And she felt these two children, she felt these different urges inside of her. When she passed by a synagogue, Yaakov pushed the out, got very excited. When she passed by uh, the opposite of a synagogue, Esau got all excited. And she was wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with this child I have? This child's schizophrenic. I mean, <laughs> it's a zealot. Whenever I'm in the synagogue, I'm in the synagogue. When I pass by a house of worship, house of idols, I suddenly become an idolater. She was very troubled. So she went to the prophet. And what did the prophet answer her? Relax. You have two nations inside of you. You have twins. Two different nations. You have two souls inside of you. You're not schizophrenic and you're not crazy. You have two different souls inside of you. You have a godly soul, a divine soul, a piece of the divine spark, a light, a flame that yearns for godliness and yearns for wholesomeness and for genuineness. And then you have the other side inside of you. That's materialistic, that's coarse, the ego, the animal inside of you. That's the natural soul. The urge for self, self, uh, self-preservation and survival. And the pull of gravity that pulls you downwards. And it's a wrestling match. And they will constantly wrestle with each other. And when this one rises, this one will fall. And when this one is defeated, the other one is victorious at the same time. One rises and one falls. And just like in a wrestling match, when one feels that the other one is rising, he fights back with a renewed vigor because he's fighting for his life. He doesn't want to be defeated. And when a person is elevated to keep the balance in this world, God created the world, it should be an equal balance. When someone is finally elevated in the service of God and he reaches a very high level, now God has to rebalance the the negative forces. So now suddenly there's a new surge of energy in the other side, suddenly with a renewed vigor that's fighting it. And the battle and the struggle never ends till the last breath in your life. You'll always be struggling because there's a balance in life. The greater the person, the greater the challenge, the greater the struggle. So don't feel um, schizophrenic. Don't feel there's nothing wrong with you. It's two centers within you. It's two forces. They're clash. They clash. They are wrestling with each other. And one wins and one is defeated. When one is winning, the other one fights back. And when one temporarily wins, the other one regains his strength and fights back. So it's on the contrary. It's a sign that you're doing something right, and it's a signal to continue doing what you're doing. And because you're hitting home, you're hitting, you're hitting it on the nail, you're hitting the nail on the head, and intensify what you're doing. Because whatever you're doing is working. Okay. For in this case... If the godly soul were truly immersed in the prayers, there would be no room within it for foreign thoughts. But in fact, there are two souls, each waging war against the other in the person's mind. The mind is thus not only the battleground, but also the prize, the object of the battle between the two souls. For each of them wishes and desires to rule and pervade the mind exclusively. Because the mind controls the heart. So whatever the mind is full with, if your mind is full with godly thoughts and holy thoughts and Torah, then you've won the battle. 
because there's no room. When there's light, there's no room for darkness. If your mind is full with holy thoughts and positive thoughts and wholesome thoughts, there's no room for negativity. It all starts in the mind. It all starts in the thought. If your channel is always tuned in to a higher frequency, and you're always thinking healthy thoughts and positive thoughts and wholesome thoughts, there's no room for, for, for anything negative. It's only in the void, in a, in a wasteland, that you have all the, all the negative, negative uh, uh, energy and negative forces. So, so there are, their battle is who's going to control the mind? Who's going to fill the mind? Will the mind constantly be filled with Torah, with thoughts of godliness, with holy, holy wholesome, inspiring thoughts? Or will the mind be filled with, with empty thoughts, mundane thoughts? Continue. All thoughts of Torah and the fear of Hashem come from the godly soul, while all thoughts of worldly matters derive from the animal soul. Similarly, in our case, thoughts of prayer are from the divine soul, while foreign thoughts stem from the animal soul. Thus, the occurrence of a foreign thought during prayer is no indication of a fault in the prayer. In fact, the opposite may be true, as the Alta Rebbe explained earlier with the analogy of two combatants. But if there are indeed two separate souls, why should the extraneous thoughts of one interfere with the devotions of the other? They would not interfere, answers the Alta Rebbe, except that the godly soul is clothed within it, within the animal soul. Therefore, the godly soul cannot ignore foreign thoughts rising from the animal soul, and thus foreign thoughts disturb one's devotion in prayer. You can't think two thoughts at the same time. So either you're going to be thinking holy thoughts or you're going to be thinking uh, unholy thoughts. So one is going to win and one is going to lose. The animal soul wants us, our mind should be filled with uh, unholy thoughts, and the godly soul wants our mind to be filled with holy thoughts. So the moment you fill your mind with holy thoughts, the animal soul gets very excited and very nervous, and it fights back, and it puts up a great fight, and therefore it bombards you from left field, suddenly bombards you with all these extraneous thoughts, your best ideas come to you right smack in the middle of Shemineser, and everything, everything you forgot to think of, all the lists that you forgot to do, suddenly, with clarity, you remember exactly, you can list them. Every, it's amazing how your best ideas come right smack in the, in the juiciest part of davening when you're concentrating, but because it's fighting back. It's because the Yetzirah, so the godly soul is, is, disturbs the peace of the Yetzirah. Can't, they can't ignore each other because they're both battling over the same area of the mind. And if one fills the mind, it displaces the other one. And the other one wants, wants your mind to be filled with, with its thoughts. Um, so therefore, they're constantly struggling with each other. So the answer is, he's saying, the answer is just completely ignore Ignore the negative thoughts. Ignore the external, superficial thoughts. Totally dismiss them. And, but feel joyous about it. And do it with vigor. And re, re-intensify your, your kavana, your, your, your concentration. And be glad that you're doing something right. You're hitting the nail on the head. You're doing something fabulously right. So don't feel dejected or sad. It's not a tragedy. It's, it's a very healthy thing. It's a very positive thing. And that's how God created the world that there's going to be this constant balance and this constant struggle. And it's just a sign that you're ascending. It's a sign that you're strengthening. When the holy strengthens, the negative forces fight back. And you should expect it. It's to be expected. It's a natural response. And it's a sign that you're ascending, that you're strengthened, that you're doing something right.
that you're awake and you've awakened the opposition. That's a fight back. Intensify. Continue doing what you're doing and only deepen it. Now he gives an analogy. This is, to use an example, like a person who is praying with devotion. While facing him there stands a wicked heathen who chats and speaks to him in order to confuse him. If the other's intention were not to disturb him, but merely, say, to ask him a question, then he could rid himself of the disturbance simply by responding to the questioner. But when the intention is to disturb his prayers, he will gain nothing by responding. If he answers one question, he will promptly be asked another. If you're a person who's wicked, who's here to disturb you, not to reason with you. If he's telling you something reasonable, stop praying for a moment, answer him, so you can go back to your prayer. But he's here to disturb you. So you'll answer him, we'll come up with another excuse, he'll bother you with something else, it'll never end. His, his purpose is to disturb you. So how do you deal with it? You're in the middle of prayer, and someone is standing you, disturbing you. And there's nothing you can do constructively to deal with it, because he's not here. He's not being reasonable. He's here to disturb you. So what do you do? How do you deal with it? What's the best way to deal with it? Surely the best advice in this case would be to answer him neither good nor evil, but rather to act as though he were deaf without hearing, and to comply with the verse, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you too become like him. When you wrestle with a, uh, a low life, it, it affects you. When you're sweeping the dirt, the broom gets dirty. When you engage in negativity, something will brush off on you. Something will leave a mark on you. So while you're arguing with this, with this negative energy, you will be affected. So why bother? Just completely ignore him. He's standing in front of you, and he's disturbing you. Go deeper into your prayer. Become oblivious to him, as if he's not there. Make yourself as if you're deaf. You can't hear. He's talking, I don't hear. I, I, I don't I have earplugs. I don't hear. You, you don't exist. Pretend, on, on the contrary, he becomes an impetus to be, only go deeper into the prayer. Instead of being all flustered and disturbed, how do I deal with this? This person is disturbing me. On the contrary, that should become an impetus for you to go deeper into the prayer. Until the, you become completely oblivious of you reach such concentration, you pray with such deep depth and such focus, and such concentration, like you've never prayed before in your life. So what, what does it mean? That that opposition, that challenge, becomes the impetus to reach such a height, such a high level of intensity and focus like you've never experienced before. So not only doesn't it discourage you or diminish you, diminish your prayer, he is the impetus for intensifying your prayer, like you've never prayed before. That should be your response. Not, not to, not to, don't feel like uh, you've set back or you're or demoralized or discouraged. On the contrary, you go deeper and you only intensify. Just as in the analogy of the heathen who disturbs one during prayer, so too, when foreign thoughts enter one's mind while praying, he should answer nothing at all, nor should he engage in argument against the foreign thought i.e. he should not occupy himself with mental discussions on the best strategy for countering the foreign thought. Many people like to be reasonable. They don't like to be rude. (laughs) 
Let's argue the case. Let's, let's discuss it. Let's sit down together, have a cup of coffee. Let's, let's discuss it. Let's be civil about it. Alter Rebbe says, don't be civil. You think to yourself, let me reason with this, with this thought that's, that's troubling me, that's bothering me, or that's haranguing me. I'm in the middle of prayer. Maybe come back to me a different time. You want to talk business? Fine, but let's, let's do it later. You can, you can reason with your thought. You think to yourself, let me reason with my thought. Let me be nice. Let me reason. I'm sure if I reason with them, they'll be reasonable. This is not the approach. Be rude. Don't be reasonable. Completely dismiss the thought. As if they don't exist. They're zero. Be completely oblivious to them. Don't argue and don't wrestle with them and don't fight with them. and Be completely oblivious. As if they cease to exist. And they should only cause you to go even deeper into the prayer. Why? For he who wrestles with a filthy person is bound to become soiled himself. Similarly, in the process of fighting the foreign thought, one's mind becomes filled and tainted by it. He should therefore not seek to grapple with it. So maybe, maybe you, will, uh, you can reason your way out of this situation. But in the next moment there will be another thought. Don't forget, like in the analogy, you're dealing with someone here who is out to disturb you. So even if you reasoned away this thought, there'll come another thought from left field. And what are you going to do then? It'll catch you off guard. You just have to dismiss. Right now I'm praying. Right now I'm talking to Hashem. Nothing else exists. Don't bother me. And if someone has the chutzpah to bother you, just, just dismiss them. It was a, someone who was having a problem dealing. He, had a, he was disturbed with it. his prayers, was disturbed by all these thoughts. And he couldn't deal with it. So the Rebbe told him, his Rebbe told him, go to this and this chassid and, and he'll help you. So he went to this chassid, he knocked on the door. It was the middle of the night. He says, please let me in. He refused to let him in. And he stood all night outside the door. In the morning, he let him in. He says, well, well you left me out, you left me standing outside all night. He says, I wanted to teach you a lesson. It's your home. Whoever you want to let you let in, and whoever you don't want, you don't let it. Your thoughts are the same way. You're in the middle of praying. So whoever you want, you let in. Yeah, thought comes knocking on your door. doesn't mean every thought that comes knocking on your door, I have to let in because that thought entered my mind. So, thought entered your mind. You look through the people. Are you a friendly thought? Are you a welcome thought? Then you come in, please. Are you not? Goodbye. Freeze to death. None of my business. Be rude. You're not welcome in my home. End of discussion. I'm not going to be civil with you. I'm not going to have a cup of coffee with you. You're not welcome. So if you treated your thoughts that way, now you can't stop thinking. It's impossible to stop thinking. When a negative thought enters your mind, you can't stop thinking. But you can switch channels. You can change the content. I don't have to listen to this channel. I'll listen to a higher frequency. I'll I'll fill my mind with a higher content. And when you're busy with a higher content, there's no room for anything else. I'm busy thinking about something else, so there's no room for the negative... Negative thought. So you are in control. Not, you're not in control of your thought. You're not in control of stopping to think. But you're in control of the content of your speech. So you can lock the door. Saying, right now, you're simply not welcome. I don't want to discuss anything with you. I have nothing to discuss with you. There's nothing. Just because you popped up doesn't mean I have to deal with you. The way I deal with you is total dismissal. Completely become completely oblivious to you. As if you don't exist. You're zero. You're nothing. Goodbye. 
end, not only aren't you being rude, but the truth is, that is the whole purpose of that thought. That is the whole purpose of that challenge. Just like, why would God, if God wants us to pray, He gave us a mitzvah to pray, and then He sends us a challenge, a curve from left field. He sends us a heathen who stands there, who wants to mock us, who wants to disturb us, who is disturbed by the fact that a Jew is connecting with Hashem and praying with Hashem with such fervor, with such intensity, and he made his life mission to disturb that Jew, to distract him and to disturb him and to humiliate him and to denigrate him. If God wants us to do the right thing, why is he sending us such obstacles? He should have created a garden of you where it's easy to do the right thing, where it's pleasurable to do the right thing, where it feels so natural to do the right thing and feels unnatural to do the wrong thing. Why did he create such a setting where it's so difficult and it seems that everything in the world is out to conspire to make it difficult for us and it's such a dis- challenge and everything is such a distraction and a powerful distraction and we're constantly being bombarded and there's no refuge because the more you intensify the deeper you get into the Torah and the mitzvot so you think, ah, oh, now I'm free I'm immersed in the Torah, full immersion. The moment you think you're free, that's when it hits. That's when, that's when you get the biggest bombardment and the biggest attack inside your mind while you're praying. Suddenly you're being bombarded with all these ugly thoughts and disgusting thoughts or, or extraneous thoughts, superficial thoughts that are distracting you from your concentration. So there's no escape. Not only you're locked behind closed doors, you're in the, there's no escape. It comes from within. The enemy lands right Right in the center, right in the middle. <laughs> Where am I going to run? I'm hiding, I'm my refuge, I'm in the, immersed in the Torah, I'm immersed in the prayer. And then, at that moment, I get the biggest attack, the biggest, the biggest bombardment. So, what's the point? What did God want from me? What does He want from my life? He wants me to do the right thing. And then He makes it so difficult. Shalat Rebbe is telling us in this chapter, you have to realize a Jew realizes that everything in this world is here to help us. Everything in this world was created for one purpose, for godliness. Everything in the world is really conspiring to help us do the right thing. As the Talmud says, that even the Satan, whatever he does, he has in mind, L'Shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven. At the root, at the source, he's a divine angel. And everything that he does is for the sake of heaven. He has a godly intent. Because it's also, he's also a creature of God. He's doing his mission. It's all he's doing, his job. God created himself. So the truth is, everything in this world, nothing is what it appears to be. This world is a false world. Nothing is what it appears to be. Don't take anything at face value. Everything in this world is here to conspire, to help us, to aid us, to encourage us, to help us intensify our connection with Hashem. But, it just comes out in a funny way. <laughs> Something gets lost in the translation. So what we hear is opposition. It appears to be opposition. In the heat of the moment, that's when there's the, the stiffest opposition. But the truth is, if you decode the message, what is the opposition really telling you? What is the purpose of that opposition? 
What is that purpose of that heathen disturbing your prayer when you're in, in, in the midst of the most intense, the most rewarding, the most beautiful prayer experience you ever had in your life? And suddenly he's there standing there in front of you disturbing you and distracting you. What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is for you to reach such a, a, a level of prayer where you become completely oblivious. To go so, so deeply into the prayer that, that that should spur you on. That should become an impetus for you to reach such a level that you become completely oblivious to the opposition. And that is his whole purpose. So whether he knows it consciously or subconsciously, his whole purpose is here to help you. He's not here to distract you. On the contrary, he's here to help you increase, deepen, intensify your connection. But of course it comes out in a very funny way. Just like anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is really, really there to help us. It's the Gentiles' funny way of telling the Jew, get your act together. Because until you do, the world is lost. The Jew stood at Sinai. The Jew experienced the revelation of the Torah, the blueprint of reality. The Jew has the key. For all of us, for all mankind, to get out of this prison or this madhouse, it's not until the Jew will get his act together, when 14 million Jews will be proud of their Jewishness and cherish their Jewishness and celebrate their relationship and their marriage to God and live a Jewish life. It's only when the Jew will get his act together that the whole world will come into focus. The whole world will become centered. The whole world will become a peaceful garden of Eden. And everyone knows it. Six billion people know it. And that's why anti-Semitism is relentless. It's not going away. Because they're not going to let us forget. Because we are sitting in the driver's seat. And the hidden message is, Jew, get your act together. And we're not going anywhere until you do. <laughs> it's only going to get worse until you get your act together. So, yes, it comes across as very negative and very harsh. Just like the example he's giving. The Jew is praying, he's trying to pray, he's trying to be spiritual, he's trying to be godly. And suddenly this idolater is standing in front of him and is trying to disturb him and distract him. And he's doing a good job. And he's putting his whole heart and soul into disturbing and to distract and to humiliate and to denigrate. It's anti-Semite. But what does a Jew hear in all of this? What's the message that we get from all of this? We don't get distracted. It doesn't, we don't weaken. We don't lose our concentration. On the contrary. This spurs us. This becomes an impetus to deepen our relationship to go even deeper into the prayer, to go even deeper into our Jewishness, to celebrate our Jewishness even more so. Not to hide and to pretend on the contrary, to deepen our relationship until we become completely oblivious to this obstacle. We don't reason, we don't argue. But with with firm resolve, we forge ahead with strength, with a renewed vigor, with a renewed depth and intensity. And you know what happens when you do that? The obstacle just melts away. And the obstacle then fulfilled its purpose. Because that really 
That's the message. You have to know how to decode. It's a special language. It's a very specialized language. You have to know how to decode the message. So the message in the negativity is positive. That's why the Jew was not crushed by anti-Semitism. Because the Jew was able to decode the message. Yes, anti-Semitism is a very negative phenomenon. But we're able to decode the message in this phenomenon. And the message is, you're doing something right. And only increase what you're doing. Intensify your relationship. Deepen your connection with God. Intensify your relationship. Become even more Jewish. Become a better person. Become more moral and ethical and spiritual. And study even more Torah. And do even more mitzvot. And do even more acts of goodness and kindness. And become oblivious to the opposition. To the negativity. To the negative energy. And when you become oblivious to the negative, the negativity just goes away. Melts away. And it's actually transformed. Then you discover that what formerly was negative suddenly everything turns into a friend. Today, for the first time in thousands of years, there isn't a single corner in the world, there's hardly a corner in the world, where Yiddishkeit, Jewish life, isn't flourishing with the blessing of the local regimes and local governments. And Jews are free. Every Jew in the world today is free. There isn't a single Jew alive today who's not free to live a Jewish life, to practice freely and proudly, and to pursue Torah and mitzvot, to celebrate the relationship and the marriage to God in a joyful way, on a daily basis, throughout the world. So what formerly was negative, an enemy, anti-Semitic, suddenly has been a complete transformation. Because the Jew did not waver, not lose his focus, was not distracted. On the contrary, deepened and intensified his relationship. Deepened and intensified and proudly celebrated his Yiddishkeit and his relationship with Hashem. And we've seen in our lifetime this miraculous transformation as a result. So what he's telling us here is something very profound. You have to be able to decode what life is telling you. Obstacles are not your enemy. (laughs) Deep down, the obstacle itself, the Satan himself, deep down, his intention is for the sake of God. Deep down, everything is godly. Everything has a godly spark. The obstacle is not your enemy. The obstacle is here to encourage you and to strengthen you and to make you better and stronger and deeper and more genuine. And when you, once you learn to decode that message properly, then instead of being discouraged, otherwise you're overwhelmed with all the negativity. But once you learn to decode the message, instead of seeing negativity all around you, you see all you see is positive. Then you see strength all around you. And, and all of your experiences only serve to strengthen you. Including your negative experiences, especially your negative experiences, only, only strengthen you and spur you on, and become an impetus. And that's how a Jew deals with negativity. We don't go hiding under the rock, and we don't, on the contrary. Every negative experience that we've encountered only spurred us on, and became the impetus to go deeper, and to intensify, and to increase, and to strengthen, and 
higher and deeper and bigger and greater and more profound and more genuine and more authentic, etc., etc. So this is this is a this is a life-altering way of looking at things on personal challenges, collective challenges, and it all begins on the personal level. Because what happens with us personally, we're the microcosm. And that's true, the same, the same is true in the macrocosm, on the global scale. How do you deal with the negativity, with this bombardment, with this seemingly, this seeming distraction that hits home right at the moment that you're warming up and that you're, you feel you're at your peak and suddenly you get hit with this negativity and these negative thoughts and these distractions. So instead of being discouraged, he says... Encounter it with zeal and with zest and with vigor and joyfully realize that you're doing something right and this is a signal to go even deeper. This is a signal to not only continue what you're doing because whatever you're doing is working but to deepen what you're doing and to take it to a new level. That's how we deal with negativity. So instead of being dejected, always feel, feel joyful. Okay, continue. Instead, he should pretend not to know nor hear the foreign thoughts that occur to him, should dismiss them from his mind and strengthen still more the power of his concentration. If, however, he finds it difficult to dismiss them because they distract his mind with great intensity, then he should humble his soul before Hashem and supplicate him in his thought to have compassion upon him in his abundant mercies. Like a father who takes pity on his children, who stem from his brain, and so too should Hashem be compassionate on his soul, which derives from Hashem's mind, the attribute of Chochmah, as explained in chapter 2. So you can try, the way, by way of dealing with this negativity, you can try to increase your power of concentration. What if you're not successful? You can't make yourself like you're deaf. You're not deaf. And it bothers you, and it disturbs you. The negativity around you disturbs you. And this idolater is standing opposite you and is mocking you and is ridiculing you and is, is disturbing you, is in the way. You don't have the presence of mind to make yourself oblivious of it. So then you can turn to Hashem in your mind because you're in the middle of prayer, so you're not verbalizing it. But in your mind, you're praying and begging Hashem for help. That Hashem, please... Dismiss these thoughts from my mind, these negative thoughts. I can't deal with these thoughts. They're too overwhelming. Please. And Hashem will have mercy on it. Because we're the children of God. We have a piece of the divine essence inside of us. A child, the reason why a child inherits his parent, because the child is the parent. You are your parent. Your essence is the essence of your parents. That's why the Torah says, honor your parents. You are your parents. And that's your essence. And we are the essence of God. So we ask Hashem to have mercy on us. And even if we're worthy, we're not worthy. But Hashem should have mercy on the divine spark inside of us. We have a piece of Him inside of us. So He has mercy on the divine spark inside of us. That's suffering. That's... In, that's, uh, that's uh, it's under pain and, and, you know, and overwhelmed by the situation. So therefore, Hashem will answer the prayer, and then Hashem will remove these foreign thoughts from us. Continue. To rescue it from the turbulent waters, i.e. the thoughts which disturb the soul. 
This he should do for his own sake, since truly his people is a part of the Lord. In order that one should not incur divine judgment as to whether he is worthy of Hashem's compassion, the Alter Rebbe advises that one should beseech Hashem's mercies for his own sake. Since the soul is a part of Hashem, in aiding the soul he actually helps himself, so to speak. The question of whether one is deserving of such aid thus becomes irrelevant. Another interpretation sees the words, This he should do for his own sake, not as part of the worship is plea, but as a guarantee. Hashem will certainly come to the aid of one who entreats him, and certainly will rescue his soul from the turbulent waters. This is for his own sake, for the soul is veritably a part of Hashem. So there's two ways of understanding the last few words. Either either Alter Rebbe is saying that this is part of your prayer, we're asking Hashem, listen God, don't do it for me. I'm not worthy. But do it for your sake. And um, much of our prayer is stated in that context. We don't pray for the singular, we always pray for the plural. We include ourselves in the plural. We don't say, heal, heal me, bless me. We say, heal us, bless us. Because you incorporate yourself in the, in the plural, in the community. Because the whole focus of prayer shouldn't just be on yourself. If it's just in yourself, it comes it come across as very selfish. Praying for my own selfish needs. But our prayers are much more likely to be answered when our prayers are inclusive. When you realize that your suffering, your personal suffering, your personal problem is part of a bigger picture. Are you the only one that's suffering? Your neighbor is also suffering. Did you notice? You're in pain. Real pain. But did you notice your neighbor is also in pain? And not only one neighbor, <laughs> many of your neighbors. And did you notice that the whole world is in pain? And while you notice, did you notice that God himself is in pain? God is in exile. His home is disturbed, is destroyed. He's homeless. Did you notice? Moses is stuck in the desert. Did you pay attention? Are you so selfish and so self-centered and so self-absorbed? While you're crying and while you're in pain, you don't even realize that everyone else is crying as well. Your problem is part of a bigger picture. And if Hashem will resolve the bigger picture, all of our individual problems will be resolved together at the same time with that. When you answer the big question, the giant question, all the little questions will get answered as well. Resolved as well. So when the Shechidna will be redeemed, when Mashiach will come, and Moses will, be, um, will march into the land of Israel, and, and the whole world will be redeemed, then my individual problems will also be redeemed. So it's a much better way of praying for yourself. So if you turn to Hashem and say, Hashem, help me. Do you deserve to be helped? Who are you? What are you? But when you turn to Hashem and you say, don't do it for my sake. Do it for your sake. The fact that I have a problem, that in my personal life I am being bombarded with negative thoughts and I can't deal with it. That's just a reflection of the macrocosm of the global, on the global scale. That the forces of negativity are so overwhelming that we just can't deal with it. We're overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed. Hashem, please, help us all. Because godliness is concealed. Godliness is under attack. Holiness is under attack. Goodness is under attack. Genuineness, wholesomeness, morality, ethics, spirituality is under attack. Decency is under attack. It's not just for my sake. It's for all of our sake. For your sake.
your spark. So you ask Hashem, don't, for my sake, do it for your sake. And then Hashem is more likely to respond. To, for your own personal needs. When you, when you put it in those terms, it's not just for myself. It's for others as well. While you're suffering, you feel the pain of others and you realize it's not just about me, but it's about the divine spark that's suffering. Your prayers are much more likely to, to be answered. And that's the whole orientation of prayer. Prayer is about changing your orientation. Instead of being a very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed orientation, prayer is meant to broaden your mind, to realize that there's a godly spark, there's something much deeper and much greater going on here. It's not just the you. That's, that's suffering. It's not just you that's off. Um, it's a little off, distorted. You're not in focus because the whole world is not in focus. So you ask Hashem to do it for His sake. That's one explanation. Another interpretation is that the Rebbe says promises. The Rebbe promises um, that when you will pray sincerely in your mind, and ask Hashem to remove these thoughts when these thoughts feel overwhelming and you don't have the energy and the strength to overcome. You feel that you don't have the energy and the strength to overcome these thoughts. Then when you pray to Hashem, the Rebbe promises that surely Hashem will answer you. Why will Hashem answer you? Because your soul is a piece of God. And therefore your anguish is God's anguish. Therefore God is helping Himself. 